Welcome back to Give Me Some Truth. This is Season 3, Episode 4. When we left off last week, Yoko mused about her and John's sexual contact and communication. While the Beatles tried to get a passable overdub take of organ, drums, and guitar on Revolution Take 20. As the recording picks up, about 30 minutes has passed since Yoko last switched on her microphone. Now, after playing for half an hour or something, you look... Um all excited and your skin is all red and sweaty like you had a glass of beer or something like that which I know you didn't I like it when you get Yoko now goes into a lengthy graphology analysis of John's handwriting, what it says about his personality and how it's changing. Another overdub take of Revolution begins. Nothing that I noticed today that I'm really, really proud of you is that, for instance, your handwriting, it's always been like all your um, letters were going backwards, leaning backwards which means tremendous insecurity. But today I've seen that all your letters were leaning forward. Not all, but most of them are sort of leaning forward. It means that you're suddenly starting to, instead of being retired, you know, starting, starting to become forward and aggressive. Which is like a very normal thing for men. They're, they're leaning backwards. Um, handwriting is typical of um, sort of insecure, terribly insecure high school girl or something like that. It's very rare to see it in a man. Did you know that? And when I saw, when I first saw your handwriting, I was really amazed because you very rarely see that in a man. And I almost felt that I saw your secret there, something. But now it's starting to change, and it's beautiful. Why? Why that insecurity and and um, the passiveness, paranoia? I hate to say it, but I really think that that had a lot to do with, with uh, your marriage. Maybe you were like that, and that's how marriage began. I don't know. But it seems like a long relationship like that would really screw somebody up. Like I was screwed up. 
that it could screw up screw people up rather. But again, it could be good too. Anyway, that handwriting and her marriage somehow I felt it was sort of an intuitive thing. The first time I saw it, I felt that there was a definite connection. In almost all the examples of John's handwriting I've seen, lyric sheets, letters, set lists, John's handwriting is very straight up and down, not leaning forward or backwards, so I don't know what Yoko's referring to. But it is evident that she's trying to link passive, insecure handwriting with the state of his marriage to Cynthia. The start of his relationship with Yoko is giving him more confidence, and that is reflected in his handwriting. Or so Yoko would have him believe. Well, my first question, is there validity in handwriting analysis? I honestly don't know. I mean, obviously she believes it's a valid analysis. I, I agree, There's, there certainly could be interpreted as a self-serving element of you were so insecure and now after we have begun this relationship, you are no longer quite so insecure. You are now more aggressive and that is an interesting element of, of what she's saying. That was something that I have never really done. I mean, I've authenticated autographs and things like that, but I've really never analyzed them as, as to leaning forward or leaning backwards. It's just, um, it never occurred to me. So I suppose from now on, whenever I look at some sort of manuscript, I'll look to see if it's leaning one way or the other. The recording cuts off and then resumes with John joining in. We can't hear everything that's said. Although the conversation starts light and playful with John joking around, Yoko starts to tell him how insecure she feels about the whole situation, and John placatingly replies to something she says by saying he wouldn't have time to do whatever it is she's worried about him doing without her. I'm possibly reading too much into that because it's difficult to hear under the playback of Revolution. What are you saying? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I also miss her, and it's a terrible feeling, alone in a crowded room. Someone comes into the control room offering some food before the tape cuts again. I think it's an egg burger? My impression of, of John, the, the moments where he kind of dips into this recording, 
it's sort of a, a similar impression that I, I got at the end of the two versions tapes where he's like, okay, I've had enough. Let's, let's stop. Is that he's sort of humoring her, but he's not as committed or something. Right. He's not as into it as, as he might be trying to lead her to believe. Because she starts talking to him or he's saying, you know, what are you talking about? And, and then she's like, oh, well, I was saying I was, how I'm missing you. And then he starts joking. Oh, well, I was missing you too. You know? Right. And, and the, the, the take I had on that was, I don't know how many guys have ever been in bands, but the day your girlfriend shows up and watches a rehearsal, which you never encourage anyway, because it's a lot of tedium, no. honestly. That's a mistake. And, um, if, if she tries to engage you on the level she's used to outside of the rehearsal room, that's one thing. You're going to react to her a certain way, but you're not going to react to her the same way in a room full of your buddies. And that's the way I kind of read it. Is that, you know, George Martin's there and three other Beatles are there. When the recording resumes, John is now behind Ringo's drums smashing away. Possibly as a result of the previous conversation, Yoko feels some emotional distance from John. Yoko then starts to join in John, Paul, and George's jam by singing along into her microphone.
Through all of this, Yoko has certainly moved out of the control room and into the studio. The drums sound very live, like they're in the same room as the microphone. And John stops playing and immediately walks over to Yoko. He hurt himself while drumming and starts to sing along with Yoko, joking about hitting himself with the drumstick, or what he calls Smasher Rooney the Stick. in the brass vertebrae. I did it myself. Don't you ever do that? I must do it now and then to keep myself in tune. I wasn't exactly doing it without you. I was just doing it in the corner. John and Yoko break to go look at photos taken during the launch party for Apple tailoring on the 22nd of May. 13 days before. The event was photographed by many, including Leslie Bryce for the Beatles Book Monthly, who was also present to photograph this session. He must have brought some prints from the event to show them. As the recording resumes, George Martin tries to encourage the group to keep working because he says it's a waste of his time for them to try and figure out what they're going to do about the long ending. Another overdub pass begins. Yoko pines for John, and the recording cuts again. As the recording resumes, John and Yoko are back in the control room, and John is discussing the amount of reverb on the drums as they listen to the overdub. I don't know. It depends if, how loud it's going to be on the actual... I don't mind all that. Yoko goes back to her diary. One fact when you're going through the transcript, Yoko talks about uh, a bill making films of them. It was William Waring, which is the guy who shot the Two Virgins film and the Smile film. 
a week later. Yoko leaves the mic open, and John comments to George Martin. The recording briefly cuts. Then, with the playback stopped, John and Paul discuss when the organ should come in. Yeah, she she makes that comment on um, when you get a little bit of the the actual musical goings on, where uh, John and Paul have this exchange, and John goes or Paul goes, I was looking at you, and Yoko's like, Did you hear that? He just said it. I was looking at you, and I was looking at him too. It's like, how fifteen are you? There is something profoundly adolescent about this stage of the relationship, which perhaps we're projecting on that too, because this is the sort of relationship you have as an adolescent. Well, we do know from the onset, right, when she approached him ostensibly not knowing who the hell the Beatles were, except that Ringo means apple in Japanese, to them being important enough to include in the, uh, the John Cage manuscript collection, that he put her off. And, and as, again, she describes herself, you know, John having this, this, this sort of fearful disposition towards somebody approaching and wanting something, you know, Paul might have by that time in Beatlemania had exactly the same sort of demeanor in that situation. But now that she's been brought into the inner circle, of course he's going to change. That's John's girl. He doesn't know for how long because it's alongside Francie Schwartz at that point. So he's going to be kind to his partner's partner. And that's our operating assumption that that's the initial embarrassment that Yoko mentions when she starts talking about Paul. It could be. That's that's her first interaction with him. Mm-hmm. Which would have been, again, autumn 66, presumably, right? Yeah. And like, um, I can see that he's just now suddenly um, changing 
his attitude that he's being um, As George Martin calls for another pass at the overdub, Paul briefly plays the Lady Madonna piano riff on organ. I'm pretty sure that among this gathering, there was a, a certain moment that really jumped out at us. And uh, I'll, I'll say what it was for me, and maybe you guys can say whether you had the same reaction to it or not. It's when she's speaking of the other Beatles, and she starts out with Paul and describes the vibe and how she's describing how solicitous he's being of her, treating her like a peer. She has no connection with George and Ringo, though she feels like they're nice guys. And they smile at her. She documents that. But Paul's the one. If he was a woman, I'd feel threatened by him. <laughs> That's it in a nutshell. There's definitely something very strong between John and Paul is what she says. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think that dynamic, as she's describing it then, characterizes them going forward for the next several decades. We're talking about the difference between the transcript, where it's described, or she says something to the effect of something very strong going on between me, John and Paul, or with me, John and Paul, and what we all heard on the audio recording, which is between John and Paul. So there's a very stark difference there between what all of us here, so far as I know, on the audio, as opposed to what's available on the transcript and very different messages. I believe Doggett uses the transcript. I believe he, I believe he goes with the transcript interpretation instead of the audio interpretation. And again, those are pretty significantly different messages coming from her because in one, she's lumping herself in with John and Paul, which is something that happens quite often. John, obviously, uh, partners Yoko and Paul quite often in his references, equates them, however you want to do, however you want to say that. But in another, she's basically saying there's something very strong between John and Paul, and she views it as an implicit threat. I think I shouldn't have given this transcript out because it's just muddied the waters. Um, well, sure. I mean, it, it had Paul been a woman, uh, another topic altogether, but, she, but he definitely would have been a threat. And, and that seems to be the thing she's trying to get across most on this tape is is her insecurity her paranoia uh who she perceived as threats and and you know was this relationship going to be 
continued on its own merit or was it going to be torn apart because existing conditions or relationships? Well, and that, again, you've discussed Pete Shotton. That's part of Pete Shotton's analysis of their relationship is anyone who was viewed as being too close to John, Yoko viewed, at least in some respect, as a threat. Pete himself was one of those individuals because he's one of John's oldest friends. And obviously we have so many sources talking about the bond among the four Beatles, where they had this almost psychic connection and they could communicate and that in certain ways, in some ways, John's relationship with the Beatles was closer than his marriage with Cynthia. And so it's, it's very interesting that you have these, these issues. There are people that have made the case that John consciously substituted Yoko for Paul in his life to the point of replicating poses and pictures he had done with Paul and now putting Yoko in his place. So the fact that she's observing this makes me wonder what John's take was on it, if it was a conscious or unconscious thing on his part, whether he knew in bringing Yoko into the inner circle at a time when Paul is sort of running the show that that was a deliberate decision to counter that, as other people, including Michael Gilmore, have made the case. Now we're getting Yoko's side of things in terms of how she feels this energy between the three of them and her place in John's life alongside Paul's. But even six months later in the Get Back sessions, we can see that that, that strength between John and Paul is still there. So mm-hmm. she hadn't replaced him at that point anyway. Or he hadn't committed to one side or the other. He's sort of mm. juggling them both. There you, go. you know, the way some guys will have, you know, two girls going on at the same time. Um, it, it is interesting. And one thing we can observe is, does this align with their public pronouncements describing their relationship? This, this private sort of uh, telling of Yoko's perspective very early on in the the studio sessions with them because this is where she became a regular fixture at this point. Well, and I would say, no, it doesn't align with their version of events. But the fact that it's Paul she does the most commentary on and the fact that he's being so kind and engaging with her, which again, based on everything we know, seems to be Paul's nature anyway. I don't think it's a stretch or an act for him. So, uh, and I think Yoko is is taking that as a compliment to her art, which is why she feels so good about it. Because uh-huh. he says, "Do you know any lighting people that we might be able to use?" You know, he he kind of played to her. He might have known what buttons to push with her. Um, you know, there was the same sort of thing with George Martin and Get Back, where she goes up and asks George, "Where do you get your scores?" and she was just talking about the paper, but it was seemed like she was trying to to attach or on a, on a similar level as George Martin. Reach him on his level. And it makes you wonder if she intuited maybe he was feeling a little uncomfortable because it's Glenn Johns running the show and he's not really in his familiar role. Yoko then switches the focus of her commentary from Paul to George and Ringo. Ringo and George, I just can't communicate. I mean, I'm sure that George and I'm sure that both are very nice people. That's not the point.
The 12 signs of the zodiac in astrology are subdivided into four groups of three signs. Each group correlates to a different element, fire, water, earth, and air. John, a Libra, Paul, a Gemini, and Yoko, an Aquarius, are all air symbols. Air is the element associated with the mind, and so air signs are traditionally thought to be thinkers and communicators. Meanwhile, Ringo and George, born in the water star signs of Cancer and Pisces respectively, would be considered more emotional and intuitive. Yoko and John would consult astrology, tarot, I Ching, numerology, and other pseudosciences for the rest of their lives. I think there might be a perception, again, maybe due to the Lennon Remembers telling, where John describes George being quite upfront, um, telling him in the office at Apple that he'd heard from Dylan and some people in New York that she's the bearer of bad vibes and why he didn't hit him, he didn't know. So I don't know where that fits in the timeline, if that was an initial impression or if it came much, much later after she was pretty firmly settled into Beetle World. But the impression you get from her description here, him in the studio, you don't get any perception he'd been rude to her. And I, I can't see that anyway, just because of who the Beatles innately were. People I, I know that were younger and not really grown up in Beetle World like we are, that watch Get Back, I, I've heard them describe, they're so polite to each other. And I think it was generally their nature. So I can't imagine him being straight up rude to her face until the digestive biscuit incident much later. But um, it, it, it was interesting to me that um, they are attempting to be friendly with her. Maybe it's because they don't know yet, George and Ringo, how long this is going to go on, if John's going to lose interest and go on to the next thing, which would be his nature, or that she's going to be in the studio for the duration. I, I don't think they, because there's no precedent for that, where they have that expectation.
Dramatic stuff. Poison pills, death, killing. Yoko returns here to her main worry and the most recurring topic in this recording, the uncertainty of her and John's relationship moving forward. The recording cuts again. When Yoko resumes recording, she has spoken to William Waring on the phone. She had reminded herself earlier to call him the next day, but obviously decided there was no reason to wait. But he hesitated because he thought that probably um, it would bother us or something. And um, it's not being so discreet if he take a film of us. I guess most people think that way. That's why they're not photographing at the door. The recording cuts. When it resumes, Yoko begins to comment on the session and the music we have been hearing this whole time. What John did in the revolution with his voice. Crazy when I have a 
the recording cuts. George played a nice lead guitar part during the outro that would not be used. When the recording starts again, Yoko resumes praising John. Another break. Given the way she has touted her career and her importance in the avant-garde world, it, you know, publicly they've sort of treated each other as equals within their realms. But in this sort of private telling of things, she seems that's one of the moments of humility on the tape where she's standing like describing the first time she has felt in awe or even insecure around another artist that she wants to go down and kiss his feet. You know, this is Yoko talking. We've never seen that side in public. Yeah, she even says on the tape that she was looking as, as John as an artist and not just a lover. Just agreeing with the level of insecurity that she reveals, which again is very out of character for the public version of the relationship that we're being given at this particular point in time. Her discussion of, as Robert was saying, she almost gets jealous of his talent. She specifically refers to him as a genius. At the same time, she also connects that about how their artistry seems to be in tune with the others, whether it's the art exhibit or whether it's his music or whether it's, I think, their auras. She talks about there would be a similarity in their auras. And even though you have this insecurity, it's also contrasted with parts of the discussion where she's talking about how this is a relationship that you get once a century, once every two centuries. So it's a fascinating back and forth between what appears to be a very genuine level of insecurity and her own description of paranoia. And at the same time, the portrayal that we get more publicly from John and Yoko of this as a once-a-century relationship. Throughout their relationship, uh, she was always putting forth a, a, a facade of self-importance, I think. She was trying to elevate her work to John's level. And like I said earlier, it, it just was too high of a bar to hit. And he was supporting her in that. You know, certainly by the time of Lennon remembers, uh, Don't Worry Kyoko is as important as anything Chuck Berry or Jerry Lee Lewis did, and rock people get this. <laughs> Apparently they didn't. We'll finish this episode here. 
Join Chip, Aaron, Robert, and me for the last part of the audio diary and our final thoughts and takeaways in next week's finale episode. If you haven't already, subscribe to Give Me Some Truth wherever you listen to podcasts. And visit at Gimme Some Truth Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and X to see photographs and other visuals from the day the diary was recorded, 4th of June, 1968. See you next week.